What it do, fam? Welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. Today we have on Johnny Miller. And Johnny Miller is the host of the podcast, Curious Humans. And his podcast that he had me on, it might be the best interview that I've ever been put through. The amount of attention and perceptiveness and emotional intelligence that he brought to that podcast brought some of the best material out of me that I may have ever uh, manifested on any podcast so far. And he has lived such a beautifully deep life. His poetry is incredible. He has a TED Talk that you can find in the show notes. And he has also walked the path of grief and recovery and meaning to an intensity that I have rarely seen in any human. And in this podcast, we go really deep on his story, on what grief is, and how you can heal from grief, and how when grief is digested, it allows the opportunity for new life and new bliss to enter in to a degree that wasn't possible before and that your ability to savor the beauty after having walked through grief is amplified. He has an incredible story, and you guys are going to enjoy it. And if you'd like to support the podcast, there's a couple of ways that you can do that. You can share this with someone that you think it might help. You can leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Um, you could check out my journaling course, uh, which is at ericgotzi.com and the button is called Make Your Myth. And you can sign up for my newsletter, uh, Feasting Friday. As always, thank you so much for your time and for your attention and for coming here when there's a million things that you could be giving your attention to in this moment. It means a lot to me. And from the bottom, you know, no, from the entirety of my heart, Thank you. I love you and enjoy. Johnny, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And I just want to take a moment to sing your praises. Uh, I came on your podcast probably, um, what is it, like a year ago around? Yeah, almost, almost. You did one of the best jobs that I've ever experienced of someone having done the research on the guest before the podcast. And you asked some of the best set of questions that I have ever gotten mm -hmm. on a podcast. And it's one of the only podcasts that I've gone back of my own and listened to in my entire <laughs> career arc of doing podcasts because I could feel like how potent what was coming through me mm -hmm. was and that the reason it was as potent as it was was because like, like a fucking conductor of a symphony mm -hmm. I could feel that like you were asking the just right question to end the first energetic tapestry I just offered. Mm -hmm. And I was excited, you know, cause like some interviewers questions are kind of clunky and I've done it on my podcast where someone's making a painting in one energy. And then the interviewer has like no sense of like where it's going and then asks a completely new energetic question. You almost have to completely change gears. Mm -hmm. And that didn't happen once. And I just wanted to say thank you for having clearly done the research that you did to prepare for the podcast and then just fucking crushing. <laughs> well, I, I truly appreciate that. And to be honest, I think I've just been, I've been a fan of your, your writing and your show for, for a long time now. And I'm really curious to see where this will go with you in the conductor seat. Um, and, and also just as an aside, I'm actually sitting in a, uh, a friend's room right now and he he listened to the episode and he reached out to say how much he enjoyed it and we became friends and now I'm recording this from his room so it's it's funny how these things work out that's fucking beautiful <laughs> so one of the things that we talked about on the podcast that I did with you was mm -hmm. um kind of your story with grief mm. and then one of the things that we talked about before this podcast is kind of the beautiful, almost unarticulatable poeticness of where you are now, given that story, 
And we talked about before that we wanted to really dive into grief and the grief process. And this is something that's been super alive for me in my interpersonal relationships and my coaching relationships, this idea of grief. Mm. So I would love to give you the opportunity to kind of share your really personal and beautiful story um, mm. that is kind of your personal gem of grief and then slowly start to move into where that spiral and cycle has brought you now. Mm. Okay. Yeah, let's let's dive right in. <laughs> um, so I guess the, the start of this, this inner hero's journey um, was about four, four years ago now. Um, and I had a fiance at the time called Sophie and she suffered from bipolar. Um, and we were traveling in, in Spain together for a week. Um, and she had to fly back two days earlier to, uh, to go back to work. And she worked as a doctor and that day at work, she had an anxiety attack. And she came home and she took her own life. And that for me was, <laughs> um, it was really, it, it shattered my world. Um, I don't really know how else to describe it. Um, and I, I can remember the time when I, I, was, I was still in, in Spain and I, I got the call and I just fell to my knees. Um, and the following the following two months were just a bit of a blur. Um, but I think, yeah, there's, there's a lot more context to give here, but I, I'd seen people around me who had, who had experienced um, loss and they, they hadn't given themselves time or space to fully grieve. And I'd seen them become, become you know, bitter and like lose that life force in them. And honestly, it scared me. And my, I was aware of my own tendencies uh, growing up in England as a, as a guy and in the, in the startup world. I didn't really know how to feel my emotions. And so I basically just said, okay, I'm, I'm going to drop everything and just, and just give myself the time and space to really face this head on. And so I, a, a, couple, of, a couple of weeks after her memorial, um, I sat on a Vipassana meditation retreat which was in incredibly, incredibly tough at the time. Um, and followed by uh, drinking ayahuasca um, a couple of weeks after that. And it, it really just um, sent me on this journey that I, I feel like I'm still on in some ways, but it, it lasted kind of two to three years of really exploring my own inner landscape and learning to um, learning to soften and learning how to be weak in the face of grief and just allowing it to, to break over me like a, like a tsunami. And, and I think a lot of people say, you know, when, when you lose someone that I'm, or people told me like, you're, you're being strong, like you're, you're being really strong. And for me, it, it really was, uh, just a, a teacher in learning how to surrender what was there. And, and I felt like, um, for me, when, when the resistance came in, in terms of anger and guilt, it, it was just my unwillingness to feel whatever was there. And I, I liken it to, um, we used to enjoy swimming in the freezing sea near Brighton, uh, where we lived. And there's something about when you, I'm, I'm sure you've experienced ice baths too, that when you, you get into the cold, it's just <laughs> like every part of your body just wants to like run in the other direction. And you're like, why, why the hell am mm -hmm. I doing this? Um, but if you, if you stay with it and if you, if you almost investigate, um, with, with what I call courageous curiosity, the actual physical sensations, there becomes a, a point where it, where it kind of, it shifts and it becomes, um, almost intensely blissful. And there's this sense of elation and, and aliveness. Um, and I feel like, yeah, mm -hmm. there's. there's something that comes up that I uh, feel called to share when it comes to like when other people how other people react to us when we know that we are holding grief and in the moment we're not expressing it fully. Mm. And they say stuff like you're being strong. Mm -hmm. But essentially most of the time, if they're unconscious, whatever their advice is, 
Their advice is essentially to keep you from breaking down because your breaking down stirs a little flame in them that they've been ignoring since Mm -hmm. they've become conscious. And the Mm -hmm. vision that comes to mind for me is one time I was walking through a park and I had done some mushrooms and I was walking alone and I was in college and um, I'd been reading a lot of philosophy and I was, you know, like a lot of existential philosophy and Nietzsche. And I just had this vision of um, like a kid sitting um, with his arms wrapped around his knees, with his head in his knees, and then he's looking up at the sky and just this overwhelming feeling of like beauty and tragedy at the Mm -hmm. fundamental nature of existence Mm -hmm. where it's like, we are exploded into this life inside of this squishy meat suit. Mm-hmm. And we are programmed to need love mm. from other squishy meat suits. And the nature of the game is that they will all die. Mm. And there's something about the juxtaposition of the bliss mm-hmm. and the requirement for existence to love. And that everything that we love will eventually be gone. And we do so much to stuff that feeling as far away from our conscious mind as we possibly can. (laughs) Because to really feel it in any moment is just to start to cry. Mm. And people who touch grief, they're touching that fire that is inside all of us. And most of us are so addicted to whatever coping patterns we have to not feel the immensity of that truth that comes with being conscious and aware. Mm. And most, most people I know, they don't know how to grieve Mm -hmm. because they've gotten in the way of the natural animal intelligence that is grieving. And the really interesting thing, and I'm sure that we're going to touch on this, but Healing trauma and grieving are so closely interwoven in their heal, like in how you do it in a way that heals you, Mm -hmm. that it feels like it's fundamentally the same thing. And that no wild animal becomes traumatized. It's only domesticated animals and humans. And it's because it seems to be that we are capable of getting in the way of the body intelligence that keeps the body from processing whatever the stuck emotion is. Mm-hmm. And grieving is one of those things that we're not taught how to do. And because you are a human, if you live long enough, you will encounter something that requires grieving. And if you don't grieve, mm-hmm. you will have the same type of illnesses that come if you have trauma that you don't heal. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's interesting to feel into most of the people around us their advice to the grieving is to essentially keep them from grieving because their grieving stirs the grief that's in them that is a fundamental byproduct of being alive. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Wow, I've got goosebumps. <laughs> there, is, there is so much there that I, I want to touch on. Um, there's, a, there's a quote by Leonard Cohen um, or it's it's in the, the song Hallelujah, and he says there is a crack, a crack in everything, and that is how the light gets in. And mm. I feel like it, as you just articulated, it is an essential part of the human condition to experience heartbreak. And I think that what I'm what I'm learning is that that is it, it in in the depth of that experience. Um, there's there's this. Uh, wonderful um myth but in 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 Dan, in one of dante's dante's inferno and they talk about the the nine icy the 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 lake of hell and the nine layers and if you swim all the way down to the bottom there is a a trap door to heaven and my sense wow. is that when we allow ourselves to be to be completely obliterated by the feeling it's it's like it strips away everything that isn't important everything all of the shit that is on the surface just is swept away and we are we are reconnected to 
to ourselves, to, to source, to our hearts. And if, if, I'm, if I'm being honest, there was a, a time for me um, when I, I was grieving the loss of being in grief because there is this just rawness and aliveness that I felt when I was, I was walking around and I, f- I felt so much more connected to my friends and my families who were there to wow. support me. And I have been, I've honestly been trying to reaccess some of that um, and, wow. and learn to feel some of those depths because it's, it's like nothing I've experienced. That is so resonant in me. Mm. I'm grieving the loss of being in grief because to be in that grief is to be more fully alive. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, man. I can feel that at kind of the core of my like worldview and my philosophy, like everything that I share is essentially optimistic. Mm -hmm. But the core of all my optimism is that boy looking up at the sky crying. Mm at the inherent tragedy and simultaneous beauty. Mm-hmm. And I can feel that like that is the core coal that feeds the entire fire of my passion. Hmm. And so I deeply resonate with that feeling of <laughs> grieving the loss of being in grief. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. Thank you for articulating that. Mm. And just um, what, what comes to mind, I, I think I, I might've shared this with you at some point, but when, w- when I had one of these, these realizations, um, I wrote this poem that I actually, I think I can recite off, off by heart and it's, it's called The Heart Speaks. Um, Joy says, I'm here always waiting for you to be soft enough to seep into your heart. Sorrow says, I am here always, waiting for you to be soft enough to seep into your heart. Heart says, when my guard is down, I cannot tell the difference between joy or sorrow. God damn, <laughs> amen. And I think what, what, I was, what I was trying to articulate there, which is, is, is difficult for people that I suppose haven't experienced, experienced this is that it, it's really just the story that changes. Like when you are, when you are in that state and you're out of your mind, it, it is, you just feel this deep sense of connection to, to yourself, to the world. And, um, I, I think that my, my work and my path in the last kind of couple of years has been to, to kind of seek to investigate barriers that naturally arise around my heart and do my best to feel into them in whatever tools I can find. I would love for you to begin to share the story of first, how you turned away from grief at the beginning because to be human is to turn away. And then what was the moment where you began to turn towards it? And then can you share the process for you Mm. um of eating your grief Mm. Mm. yeah this is actually this is this is really alive for me right now um and i I had a realization yesterday morning that i'll i'll share here um but my my initial turning away from grief was I think initially there, there's just numbness and disbelief and shock. Um, it almost feels too much, just, just denial. I, I think it feels too much to fully comprehend um, what, what has happened. And one of the things I feel called just to offer quickly for people is that I think a lot of people who are listening to this might feel shame or guilt mm-hmm. at this sense of denial. Um, but it seems to be that the psyche is infinitely intelligent. Mm-hmm. And that in the moment when grief first enters our life, it's almost like the psyche knows we have to put up a dam to keep out the tsunami Mm -hmm. and we will slowly begin to trickle it in into gulps that the little thing can swallow um, so that it's not completely overwhelmed and destroyed by it. And so I just want to offer that for people that if you're in that stage, there's no shame. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I would say maybe 
sometimes it's like small waves followed by a tsunami when your when your ego is is strong enough to to really feel into it and to and to feel the full devastation. <laughs> exactly. But but yeah, coming back to coming back to the the story. Um, I initially for the the first couple of weeks we we'd had a conversation um, over dinner where. Sophie had shared that she was um, she was afraid that she wasn't brave enough to take her own life, um, and this this comment almost it, it kind of came out of nowhere to some degree. It, it seemed like out of place, and at the time, I shared, um, I said, "You are the most courageous person that I know." And in the days and weeks afterwards, that that sentence just ate away at me with, mm. with shame. Like I, I really took this, um, this deep sense of like, I contributed to this. Um, and I eventually mustered up the courage to share this with her brother and her mom. And, and they, they kind of shared that like, it's, it wasn't, it wasn't my fault. <laughs> and I, I think my, my initial my initial response was to to feel like I needed to go through this on my own and um I think that a big a big part of turning towards it was actually learning to ask for help and learning to let others in to to hold space and to support me um and Hmm. Yeah, it, it was it, the, the times when I think I I turned towards it were when I was honestly swimming in the sea, um, and, and there was something about the the pain of the cold and just staying with that until like every single bone in your body is is frozen. Um, that just it allowed me to soften, I think, and it allowed me to to actually feel some of what was there. Um, That's a really interesting insight. I can feel that when I'm grieving, like when something emotionally tumultuous is happening in my life, I sit in the ice mm-hmm. bath longer. And there's some part of me that mm-hmm. enjoys the pain of sitting. It's so interesting, but... As I am in pain, I am more able to endure pain mm-hmm. that feels like it's good for me. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and it, it felt to me that there were there were so many different aspects to grieve. Um, in in the beginning, it was it it was just simply painful not having Sophie there to support me through the journey of, of her loss. And there was, you know, so many places that were, were kind of rich with these, with these memories. Um, and I kind of gradually one by one revisited some of these places that almost held, um, held that sense of there was something here that I, I need to kind of say goodbye to. I need to let go of. And, and, and then, Another side of it, which was, um, I guess maybe isn't talked about so much, was this sense of I was grieving for the loss of my identity that I'd projected into the future. Every, all of the, yes. the plans that we'd made to, to move to a different city, to potentially have children one day, like everything that I had imagined about the future of my life almost self-combusted in that moment. And it was just this complete, it, it was like the raft that I was holding onto just got stripped away from me. This is hugely important. And this is something that I want to articulate for people listening is that one of the most misunderstood aspects of grief is that your version of the future that you have been dreaming into is akin to a life. Your future self is like a friend 
or a lover. Mm. And if a truth of the current present moment hits you in such a way where it kills that future, you now have a, a death of a loved one that must be grieved. Mm -hmm. And because we seem to be so disconnected from our psyche and we're very in our thinking mind, most people don't understand that this death feels to the psyche as like a lover died. Mm. And it needs to be grieved. Like for me, man, when I was in high school, I truly thought I was going to be an NBA basketball player. And when I tore my rotator cuff uh, my junior year, that future died. That man that I had been envisioning every day for hours when I was outside shooting a basketball mm. died. And I became depressed and I didn't even have the awareness that I was depressed. And then I got surgery and I felt how immobile my body was and I got addicted to Oxycontin. Mm. And I had no one around me that was able to reflect back to me that I was running away from my grief. And it took me years to get to the point where I could cry for the death of that boy's future. Mm. Wow. Wow. And it, it, it makes me think that um, there are so many, so many little griefs that I think we're all carrying. And, and it's, it, you know, it's, it's easy to talk about when it's the, the loss of a, a loved one or a family member, but I, I think you're, you're absolutely right in, in, in almost on, on a daily basis, there is these little losses that if we don't make time for, or we, we tell a story that allows us to avoid feeling the, the sadness there, then we're just, we're just numbing ourselves. And, and I, I really believe that unprocessed grief is is leading to a lot of the a lot of the pain that we're seeing in, in the world today and it's coming out in in really shadowy ways it might even be useful to classify unprocessed grief as trauma mm. and i don't know if anyone's done that but my intuition mm. is that in the same way that if you incur trauma and you don't process it for five years the way the symptoms start to stack and morph and grow mm. It feels like the same thing with unprocessed grief happens, that if you don't process it, your coping patterns and your addiction and your addictive behaviors have to grow. Your constant state of stress starts to eat your immune system. It starts to eat your sleep. Mm. It starts to eat your ability to repair yourself. You might get autoimmune disorder conditions. You might get weird chronic pain conditions. Mm. You might get mental disorder diagnoses like depression or anxiety or bipolar disorder or whatever it is, or an eating disorder. And it feels like, and this is the first time that I've ever articulated this, but it really feels like unprocessed grief mm -hmm. might respond or unfold in the nervous system the same way that unprocessed trauma does. Mm. That, is, that is so interesting. And what, what comes to mind for me is... Um, I've been trained as a, a breathwork facilitator and in some of my own breathwork journeys and, and having watched my, my teacher lead, leads what he, what he calls breath translations, he's begun to map um, kind of stored repressed emotion to different parts of the body. And more mm. often than not, grief is held in our, in our hips and kind of in that, in that area. And I, I know that I've experienced, I've experienced, um, like in, in yoga classes being in, in pigeon for long periods of time and just like looking down and there's this like puddle of salt water on the yoga mat and I'm like, shit, <laughs> like where did that come from? <laughs> and and it, I've experienced you know, the intense kind of full body shaking that has originated in, in my right hip area, which um, I've been told is where a lot of grief is often stored. So I, I think... That's where my chronic pain is, is in my right hip, brother. Interesting. Huh. I, I, I don't know if people have done research into the connection between grief and trauma. That's it's a really interesting thread to put on. Yeah, that's something that I'm going to explore. I would love to step back into your story of mm. um, how, how did you, what did it actually look like where you could feel that you were beginning to actually sit with your grief? Like, what was that first moment? Mm. Yeah. 
it felt like I, I think I can I can remember one the moment that, that comes to mind is standing on the pebble beach in Brighton. It's like 7 a.m. in the morning, like freezing my butt off. <laughs> and I remember just allowing myself to soften into the pain that was there. And at the time, it, it feels like this, it, it feels like when you like open up the lid, it, 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 the fear is that it's going to be this like bottomless pit, this, this oblivion. Um, mm. and there was also a moment on, um, on my Vipassana meditation retreat where I, I woke up with, with nightmares. I just, I had these, these nightmares, um, like 2am in the morning and obviously you can't talk to anyone in the, in the retreat. And so I remember just sitting there in like in the middle of the night and just feeling that I was almost too tired to fight. The feelings mm. um, and there was this just sense of like exhaustion but also just surrender into surrender what that was. Yeah. yeah so it really feels like the turning point for you was this vipassana retreat how long after her passing was it when you said yes to this vipassana retreat it was about um I signed up about six weeks afterwards and attended about 10 weeks afterwards. What's wild to me, man, and when I start to describe or talk about trauma with people, I can feel that I can start to feel hopeless. But the thing that gives me infinite hope is what is represented by your story and the Vipassana retreat, which is our bodies know how to heal if we can get out of the motherfucking way. And the beauty of a Vipassana retreat is that you are simply not doing. And by not doing, you allow the infinite intelligence inside of you that you constantly inhibit by your constant doing to begin to heal you. And by literally just sitting and not talking, not looking at email or your phone or your to-do list. This millions of year old accumulated intelligence that is stored in your DNA that synthesizes all the proteins that make the body that you walk around in knows what to do, will bring to your awareness what needs to be brought to your awareness, will manifest the emotions that need to be felt, and can unlock the doors in the room of your psyche that you have hid. Mm. And I remember um, Tim Ferriss's story about how he began to heal from his childhood trauma. Mm -hmm. And the thing that broke him open was a Vipassana retreat. It was simply doing nothing that allowed these traumatic memories to come up and to be looked at. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I would, I guess, just to, to add to that beautiful description is... There's something about um, what I now think of as, as courageous curiosity, but specifically to the felt sensations in our body. And the way for listeners who may or may not be familiar, the way of a pattern works is you're, you're literally doing this body scan over and over again. So you're, you're sitting still, you don't have any distractions, you can't even journal. Um, I remember trying to write on a piece of toilet paper because I was just so desperate to write some <laughs> thoughts that I had in my mind. Um, but you're just inquiring to how you're feeling in your body over and over again. And I think, like you say, that gives the innate intelligence within spaciousness to surface what it has been protecting and what it has been holding onto. Um, and, and when I think of, of other uh, I, I guess tools or experiences that helped me move through different aspects of the grief, all of them entailed some degree of somatic awareness and some degree of, of spaciousness. And, and, and the other example that I'll mm -hmm. give is um, learning to free dive. 
was also a surprisingly powerful experience because you're essentially you're teaching your your body to relax as much as possible on the surface you're breathing so that you slow down your heart rate and you're just you're just bobbing there like a jellyfish and and as you dive down as the pressure gets more intense um you in order to equalize you have to scan your body and notice the places of tension and then consciously be like right my my chest is tense i'm going to relax into it and when you soften into it you're then able to equalize and fall deeper and that that for me is just this really um incredible metaphor for what the process of grief is like it's like you go down mm. meter by meter and you you become aware of your body and the sensations that are arising and then you you somehow allow yourself to soften even more deeply and that allows you just to keep on sinking what's beautiful man is something that i've been playing with is the power of putting people through guided meditations where the elicited imagery mm. is archetypically in alignment with how the psyche would metaphorically understand doing something. And so to give an example, like if you were to give a guided meditation to help someone process grief, an archetypically functional metaphor would be free diving. Mm. And that if someone were to really understand the somatics of free diving and were to use that as like a linguistic map to put someone through like an hour-long deep guided meditation, mm. it feels like it could actually help them help the Western mind connect to grieving if they don't have access to actually free dive. Hmm. That's a that's a really powerful idea, and I've um, in the recent years I I took a meditation teacher training, and I've been designing some of my own meditations, which um, just more create a space for self inquiry and for whoever is being guided to describe the shape or the sensation or the texture of whatever the the feeling or the the, the tension is, and then gradually you know, holding them in in love giving them permission to accept and eventually mm. soften into and, and integrate um, whatever that sensation is but i i love the idea of um making it more there's there's a metaphor i like i i've been thinking about this like framing breathwork shadow work as this like inner adventure because when people talk about yes. experiencing these yeah, processing trauma, it, it sounds heavy and, and in some ways it is. Uh -huh. But I think that almost using using ad adventure or, or or beautiful archetypal journeys like like freediving and imagery, it creates this sense of of adventure, which people come to expect challenge and expect some mm. degree of hardship. So I I really like that. And and I think um to return to the point around creating spaces for grief. I think the more bridges that we can build that meet people right. where they're at, like freediving guided meditations, um, I, I think that feels like the, the way forward. So I'd love to invite you back into sharing your story because I really am excited for people listening to hear um, how the adventure brought you to where you are now because mm. it's, it's poetically transcendent to me. <laughs> hmm. So, um, hmm. I, I felt drawn in the, in the year, kind of fast forward a year or so. Um, I was kind of drawn back to the places that had meant a lot to Sophie and I. Um, and I, visited Morocco and, and Portugal. And one of the places that was um, most kind of dear to us in, in some ways, we'd, we'd had some amazing memories, was it was in Bali. And so I ended up moving out there. And that's where I, I lived for uh, the last couple of years. And while I was in Bali, um, as well as uh, doing my meditation teacher training and, and learning about breath work and, and all the things that I'm up to at the moment. Um, 
I also met, uh, I, I met my, my now, my now partner. Um, and she had a, she had a boyfriend at the time. Um, and we, we kept in touch. We kind of kept, uh, emailing back and forth, um, just as friends. And then January last year, I was flying through Colorado and I just sent her a message and said, Hey, I'm, I'm passing through. Um, do you want to, do you want to meet up? And she had coincidentally broken up with her, her previous boyfriend just about a week previously. Um, so I, I flew out there and we had just a, a magical, a magical 10 days. And it was, it was really scary I, to kind of enter that space again. Um, yeah. and to, to afraid of what it was going to bring up in me and afraid of my own capacity to kind of be a, be a partner in that way. Um, and I was just yeah, really, really scared of getting into another relationship. And, and a big part of that was also a sense of guilt and a sense of, um, a sense that I was still in some ways tied and committed to, to Sophie. Um, and then in the, in the weeks that, that followed, um, I then flew back to, back to Bali and then came to Mexico for a, for an, an event that was canceled almost as soon as I landed, uh, because of, of COVID and, I then sent her a message and said, um, Hey, can I, can I come and stay? <laughs> and I just arrived in my like vest and flip flops in like eight degree, eight, eight feet of snow, um, in, in Lake Tahoe, um, just as the quarantine was starting and, and what transpired, um, was, was honestly some of the most just magical few weeks of my life. Um, and, and so many of my, my fears around how awkward it would feel and, and just the, the things that would surface didn't trans didn't transpire. And, and what was, what was left was, was honestly a deeper capacity that I felt in my own heart to let love in. Mm. Um, and to continue the story, we, uh, we then moved to uh, Boulder, or just outside Boulder in Colorado, where we lived for three months. Um, my visa then expired, and so <laughs> the only, pretty much the only place in the world that was open at the time was a place called Puerto Escondido in Mexico, where I went out to think I'd you know only be there for a few weeks and then come back. Um, but she ended up joining me there, and we stayed for we stayed for six months. Um, and then at the end of the end of last year, we had both decided to sit on this, uh, a 10 day meditation retreat, um, at a place called Ridaya in, in Mazunte on the Oaxaca coastline. And this retreat was, um, the meditation was focused on, uh, inquiring into your heart and asking the question, who am I? Who am I? And there were just beautiful teachings that were woven from Sufi mysticism to Ramdas to, um, to Christianity to all of these traditions were kind of woven in this really powerful way. And then on, on the 10th day, um, the topic of the meditation or, or, or the day was on, was on death and the, the teacher posed the question to us if you were only going to have one more year left on the planet, if 2021 was going to be your last year alive, what would you do? How would you spend it? And um, at this point, both of our hearts just kind of cracked open and we, we went outside the meditation hall and we kind of broke the rules of, you know, no, no eye contact and we just hugged each other. Um, and following that, um, <laughs> we, uh, we both decided to do a time in the silent retreat, 
uh, there, there was a, a dark room they had there. And I chose to do 10 days and she did five days. And at the end of her five days, I was, I was kind of waiting and I took her down to the beach um, with a blindfold on at the end of the five days uh, at sunrise and proposed on the beach at the, at the bottom of the hill. Um, and she, wow. she said yes. And, and we, we got married, um, on a beach nearby, uh, just 12 days later, we, we like rallied some friends that were, that were in town and everything just flowed and people, like one of our friends was the photographer. Um, one of, another friend helped out with, uh, a, a friend who's a Buddhist comedian was our was our celebrant, and and everyone just chipped in, and it was just this this beautiful celebration of of love, um, and it, it wasn't a, a traditional um, wedding by by any stretch, and, and we hope to have other ceremonies for friends and family um, when when the lockdown is over. But it was just this this commitment to each other, and. Um, the start of a new chapter Dude, fucking, for both of us. The beauty of feeling into what it must be like for a conscious awareness hmm. to be in darkness for five days, to be led down to a beach by their lover, blindfolded, hmm. and that the first image that they see after five days in the darkness is the fucking ocean and their lover on their knee proposing. It gives me goosebumps, man. That is what motherfucking stories are made of. <laughs> and it seems to me to be that in order to manifest those moments, it requires a certain amount of heartbreaking open to the world to be able to even allow that much pleasure into your heart. Mm. And I'm just essentially singing the celebration that the two of you got that experience. That's incredible. Mm. I appreciate that. Um, truly. And I, I think that many of us feel um, when we're in the presence of someone who has who has been through something that is truly, truly hard, and, and truly forced them to um, break open, and and the people that I feel like are most alive, most in their in their dharma, most living their truth, they have almost without exception been broken open in some way or another, whether it's through, through sickness or through, through trauma or through loss and grief. And I keep returning to this idea that, um, that there's, there's like a, a Bill Plotkin refers to it as the sacred wound through which we, we mm. dive into. And when, when our, when our psyches, when our, when our consciousness allows ourselves to make that, make that dive, then the, the gifts and the depth that are possible um, on the other side are just unlike anything that, that we can imagine. And I, I also want to preface this with oh, that it's 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 easy to forget um, these these states. <laughs> and I think that that has I, I I'm currently in the process of writing a, a short book of poetry that is going to be titled "Remember, Forget, Remember," and I feel like. Mm. Um, mm. I have, I've been in more moments of, of forgetfulness in, in the last <laughs> couple of years, but those moments where you do remember the depth and that, and that aliveness, it's like, yeah. it's, it's so sweet. And, and, I, and maybe the forgetting is, is necessary, you know, I think that's part of the process. 100% man. The thing that I constantly give to friends who are at that point in the hero's journey. Like it's such a constant and human experience that it gets its own stage in the hero's journey, which is the resurrection stage, which is the 11th of the 12th stages. You forget, mm -hmm. you forget 
that moment that came when you faced the hardest thing that you ever faced and you realized that you were enough to not only face it, but to dance with it. Mm. And then you come back to the quote unquote ordinary world. And it is an essential archetypical step of how we move through life that you will forget. But whenever you forget, you now have at your disposal the opportunity of the most beautiful sensation that it seems to be that we are capable of experiencing and it's remembering. Hmm. Like the gift of forgetting is that you now have the opportunity to remember. Mm -hmm. And man, those moments when you remember, indescribably sweet, you can remember the humor that is in this infinite thing that we call the universe or God or whatever. And also it's infinite patience. Hmm. It never takes it personally that you forget. <laughs> it never is vindictive yep. or holds a vendetta or a grudge. It is the infinitely patient grandmother waiting for you to come home. Yeah. And God, it feels good. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, it, it's there all along. It's there the entire freaking time. <laughs> that's, that's the joke. It's like, <laughs> it's just when we allow ourselves to get out of the way, um, that I think those, those moments happen. Um, and, and I, I feel like as well, um, I've been thinking about the hero's journey in my own life is like going through spirals and it's like each time go into the underworld and, and come out the other side, there is this almost like a greater depth or, or a greater level of remembering or a greater um, capacity to touch that ineffable. And given where you've been and where you are now, what feels most alive in you going forward? Hmm. This is a... This is a question that I'm, I'm sitting with here in, um, in community. And for me, the aliveness is coming from learning how to create interesting containers for others to embark on their own inner journeys um, mm. and for me some of those containers at the moment look like uh, meditation coaching and specifically holding breathwork circles and facilitating breathwork um, and finding ways to uh, elicit some of the aspects that might be hiding so we, we talked about the the king warrior magician lover um, mm. archetypal framework in our conversation on, on the podcast. And I'm, I'm looking at ways to integrate those, those frameworks with breath work and bringing in uh, journaling practices mm. and, and meditations as well to almost theme some of the journeys through the lenses of each of the archetypes. And for my... Fuck yeah. <laughs> it's exciting. Um, and for my, I, I guess the way that I'm earning money at the moment is through researching emotional resilience and um, running workshops for startup founders and leaders, which is, is kind of the world, the tech world that I'm from previously, and helping to language some of these, these modalities and these ideas and, and, and also trauma in a way that, uh, that resonates and lands with them where they're at. So we... We, uh, my, my co-author and I coined this idea of emotional debt in this resilience report that we researched. And emotional debt is, is kind of a stand-in for trauma, but the, um, the metaphor of you know, having all of these micro-stresses that build up over time and eventually lead to some kind of burnout experience um, was just a way, of, a way of framing it. So, so what, what feels most alive for me is, is staying true to staying connected to my heart and honestly acting from that place. I, I used to be very goal-orientated and you know, setting myself milestones and objectives. And I'm, 
following learning how to surrender in different areas of life, I'm, I'm doing what I can to surrender to the flow of what wants to come through. And mm. right now at the moment, that is, that looks like poetry. That looks like creating workshops for the, the friends around me right now. It looks like podcasting, um, doing some coaching as well with a, with a couple of, a couple of people and, and just following, following the curiosity and committing to tuning back in on a regular basis to just feel, is this, is this direction true? And what is the, what is the spark or what is the impulse beneath the desire to create this project? Um, I, and, and having a, a company called Curious Humans, I have a tendency to go in lots of different directions. And so, <laughs> been, which is the, the shadow side of it, right? And, and one mm. of my, my, my theme for this year, I, I did a, a kind of a big annual review template and the theme has been commitment and commitment both in my, my personal relationship, uh, getting married, but also commitment to specific projects. And, and I feel like for me, there is a certain depth that is possible when you commit your full self to, to, to one direction for a period of time. Yep. Um, and so that is what I'm, that is what I'm learning after uh, many years of, of bouncing between different directions. I'm curious. Um, I would like to kind of put you into a vision and then hear the advice that you would give. And so, mm. um, if you imagine that you're in Bali walking, I'm not quite sure what the landscape looks like, but just imagine that you're walking through some type of trail and some type of jungle or wooded area. Mm-hmm. Um, and you come across a river and you see a 22-year-old boy crying mm-hmm. by the river and you go and you sit with him and you essentially learn that he's grieving and he's overwhelmed by the grief. It's just happened. You can kind of see the younger version of you in him. And you feel the call to want to give him guidance or advice about how to navigate the next six or 12 months. I would love for you to talk to us like we were that boy and hear what you would say to us. Speaking truthfully, I think my my initial my initial impulse would be to not say anything, but just to just to hold him and just to hug him. And I, I say that coming from a place of one of the most terrifying aspects of being in a relationship with someone who has bipolar is every once in a while they they find themselves in a place where there's nothing that you can you can do like you can't you can't fix anything and i and i think a lot of other men especially have this this desire and impulse to fix and i think that that comes from our own inability to sit with the pain that they're experiencing um so my impulse would be to to sit down next to him, to put my arms around him and and to remind him that he is loved no matter what and that there is a a place within him that he can access a sense of joy and wonder that doesn't depend on what happens in the outside world and that whatever whatever the reasons or the stories that he is mourning or crying um that that those feelings will will pass the clouds will clear and there is always a place within him where he can feel safe and loved and he doesn't need to 
search in the outside world, and I, I'm speaking personally now through <laughs> stories, <I know>. books, <laughs> people, mentors, courses, the, everything that we that we churn through to to find those answers. Um, I would just remind him that that is within him, has always been within him, and always will be within him. Yeah, that's what I would say. For people who feel that they have grieving to grieve, what resources would you offer for them to go explore, Mm. to try maybe specific types of breath work or books that really resonated with you, Mm. movies, courses, researchers? Oh man, so so much. Um, speaking, Speaking from personal experience, I would say... The first thing that comes to mind is actually poetry, which I never really read or appreciated mm. until until this until this journey. And people sent me um, poems by Rilke, especially. Um, yeah, Rilke and, and Rumi as well. Rumi says the the cure for the pain is is in the pain, and I think yeah. that sums it up so <laughs> friggin' perfectly. Um, yeah. So, I, and, and I think that. Poems have a way of speaking to us when we're in that state, and we just we, we get it on a deeper level. So that's that's one thing. Um, I would also recommend, in terms of reading and listening, uh, there was a there was an interview um, of Elizabeth Gilbert on uh, I think it was TED, the, the, one of the TED podcasts, and it was it was the transcript was reproduced on Brain Pickings. And she lost her partner, Raya, um, a few months after Sophie. And the way that she was able to articulate her experience of grief just resonated so deeply within my being. Um, mm. So I would really recommend people, people find that. Um, I would also say really allow, allow yourself to ask for help and allow yourself to let others in to the degree that you can. Um, there is that sense of like wanting to stay strong and wanting to like go through it yourself. And that is, I think just a much harder, a much harder path in many ways. Um, and then in terms of, in terms of tools and, and kind of experiencing the actual, I, I do believe it is trauma that is stored in our body. Um, really any kind of somatic based therapy and that could look like uh, guided me- meditations. Um, it could look like working with a somatic experienced or a, a, a therapist trained with uh, somatic experiencing. Um, I'm a huge advocate of breath work as well. If it's mm. um, guided in a in a safe container, and I, I generally tend to gravitate towards the the softer style, so so less of the the holotropic. Um, and more of the the more gentle, conscious, connected breathing practices, or or more yin styles of breathing. Um, what would be a, a term that people could study to find that type of breathing or that type of breath work? Yeah, if you if you just Google conscious, connected breath work, um, there will be Perfect. a bunch of res- bunch of resources there. And that was that was honestly for me the biggest, um, the most helpful modality and tool that I I came across. Um, as well as in in my own journey, sitting with ayahuasca, but I I wouldn't necessarily <laughs> recommend right. that for everyone. I think that's that's only if you're feeling called and you you have a very safe space and you trust the you trust the, the guides. Um, um, and I I would also I would really encourage you to take pick up a journaling habit as well. Um, I, Amen. Yeah, I mean, you have a fucking amazing course on this, so <laughs> I don't, I don't need to preach the converted. But um, it, it was again a time when I, I was really able to articulate some of the and 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 realize what it is that I was experiencing, and and eventually, um, journaling every morning led me to writing poems, and and that became a kind of mm-hmm. a vehicle for expression as well. So I would, I would definitely advocate for some kind of 
some kind of journey and some kind of meditation practice as well. Um, because I think it can be really valuable to be able to have some psychic space between whatever the feeling or emotion is and our sense of self. And meditation is a particularly effective tool for, for creating that. What I love is that the last stage of the hero's journey is to bring the medicine home. And you have absolutely gone through a journey. And this podcast is evidence that you are at a place where you can bring the medicine home. And you got invited to one of the hardest types of journeys, brother, which is a deep confrontation with grief. And I truly, from the fullness of my heart, appreciate you being willing to share your story as medicine. Everyone listening will know grief at some point. Everyone listening will have almost no examples in the world about how to actually grieve. Mm. And I hope that this can serve as a compass in the fog that is grief for people in Western culture. And I appreciate you being the compass. Mm. So much gratitude. Um, it's been, yeah, it's a pleasure to talk about these things with you. And, and honestly, it's, it's rare to be able to have a conversation with someone who, who kind of gets it as well. So this has been, it's been such a privilege and I, I appreciate you. Is there anywhere that you would like to lead the people who feel called to follow you further um, before we close out the podcast? Mm. Um, yeah, you can search, um, my name, Johnny Miller, uh, Ted, um, and the gifts of grief was a TEDx talk that I gave last year, which, which kind of goes into more of the story. Um, if you feel drawn to watch that. And then my, my website is johnnymiller.co, J-A-N-N-Y-M-I-L-L-E-R.co. And I link out to some of the research. Um, there's breathwork resources as well and links to a uh, emotional resilience wiki which lists some of the resources that we've that we've talked about so that could be helpful for people brother thank you so much thank you thank you thank you and i look forward to the next time that we connect thank you this has been such a such a pleasure